It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. He killed his victims after the same sort of behaviors going in, ransacking, sexual assault, and then he ended up killing and bludgeoning his victims to to death, which was, again, the ultimate control. This week, I had the honor of speaking to Julia Cowley, a retired FBI agent who served as the lead profiler on the Golden State Killer case. Julia discusses how she was brought on to work the infamous case and provides detailed insight into what the intensive process behind creating a behavioral profile on an unknown offender is like. Julia's work played a pivotal role in the investigation that ultimately led to the arrest of Joseph D'Angelo. Julia discussed how key details from his horrific crimes led her to believe that the suspect had a background in law enforcement. Now, I don't want to give too much away, so if you haven't listened already, go back to hear more about Julia's incredible investigative work. Joining me now is the wonderful Gianna Gelosi. Hi, Gianna. Hi, Emily. So you spoke with Julia about her work creating a profile and who we now know to be Joseph D'Angelo. What fascinated you most about her work in speaking with her? Part of it was the background. You know, the behavioral analysis unit is so elite. And learning about her particular career and how she got into this elite unit and then what the actual X's and O's are like of creating a behavioral profile, which took her, in this case, a year. That was incredibly riveting. And her work on the case helped come to the conclusion that the Golden State Killer might actually have a background in law enforcement. How did she realize this? Well, part of her hypothesis was based on the fact that how, why, and when the killer used firearms in the course of his burglaries and in the courses of his homicides. And I don't want to give too much away, you guys, but the big key thing here is that remember when that profile was released, it didn't include that he had law enforcement background. And there's a reason why, and there's a reason why when she suggested it at the time, when it made it into a report, that it didn't make it into the public eye. So all of that remains to be revealed out of her mouth when you guys listen to the amazing episode with Julia Kelly. I can't wait for everyone to hear it. Now, what shocked you most about the case itself? The details, I think, between her connecting, who at the time was the Visalia ransacker, with who we learned was the Golden State Killer, connecting all of those dots and the exact why behind them, the painstaking details, picking apart the crime scenes and bringing it to light as to why she was confident that the same monster who had been ransacking homes in Vasalia, California, was responsible for sexual assaults in Sacramento and ultimately homicides in even more Southern California. So all of those details she presents uh, with such really gripping perspective. All right. Thanks, Emily. Really riveting stuff. I can't wait to listen to it. Have everyone listen to it. It's a case that we've all heard about. It spans so many decades and now it finally has a conclusion. Coming up, Gianna's got a great interview with another woman with close ties to the Golden State Killer case. Don't go away. You will not want to miss this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
Before he was known as the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo was better known to law enforcement as the East Area Rapist. When Detective Carol Daly was handed the case, she'd been with the Sacramento Sheriff's Department for eight years and was one of the few women in the field. From 1976 to 1979, the department received reports across Sacramento of a man responsible for home invasions in which he would hold the inhabitants at gunpoint, bind them, sexually assault the women and the girls inside. As a response, a task force was created to handle the series of attacks, and Carol would go on to join the team as the sole female investigator. During this time, Carol worked closely with the victims of the East Area Rapist attacks. She was responsible for taking victims to the hospital, interviewing them about the traumatic incidents they endured, and making sure they were taken care of following the assaults. Decades passed before Joseph D'Angelo was arrested for his crimes, finally bringing an end to his horrific reign of terror all across California. As the Golden State Killer was brought back into the headlines, so were the emotional wounds of all the victims he tormented. However, for many of them, Carol played a vital role in their healing due to the empathy and the care that she brought to the case. Today, retired Under Sheriff Carol Daly joins us to share the story of her involvement on the case. Carol, thank you so much for joining us and take us back to the mid to late 70s. You're the only female detective on a team that's investigating a series of attacks in Sacramento by some guy called the East Area Rapist. How did you get involved with the case and what was it like talking to these victims about this horrible crime? Okay, um, just to give a little bit of history, um, I hired on the Sheriff's Department in 1968. Women weren't working patrol at that time, so I actually went straight to detectives specializing um, in all kinds of sex crimes, uh, crimes against children, incest, molest, uh, child neglect, abuse. And then I moved over to the detective division and uh, specialized in working rape cases. In fact, I worked every rape case that came into the department. Then in 1977, I transferred into the homicide detail and so I kind of thought I was through with uh, investigating rape cases. But in uh, 1978, we had the first attack of the East Area Rapist in Sacramento County. Um, I didn't investigate the first case. And actually, they didn't have enough female uh, detectives um, uh, working in the department yet. So when a rape case would come up, um, I would um, get assigned to it in the homicide detail along with my other duties. And so I did not get involved initially. I worked, I think, the second case, but it was really about the uh, fifth case uh, his attacks in Sacramento County that we realized that we had a serial rapist going. And uh, so I was still kind of pulled uh, into a case and then back into homicide, then back into, um, you know, a, a rape case, but only those of the East Area Rapist. Um, and it wasn't until uh, several months later that the task force was formed and I was pulled out of homicide then to work all of the uh, East Area Rape cases. And what was it like talking to these victims about this well, gruesome, horrible things that he was doing to them? These were uh, very lengthy interviews as uh, the rapist was in the house for sometimes two to three hours. He would come in, uh, he would uh, confront the victims, and of course he would tie them, he would bind them, he would blindfold them, and then he just took his time. Uh, he would wander through the house, he would repeatedly come back 
to um, rape. Um, there was uh, so many humiliating things that he did uh, to the victims. And so because the attacks were over such a long period of time and they were repeated attacks, of course, the the interviews uh, were lengthy and the interviews were extremely difficult uh, for the victims. So trying to uh, put them at ease and let them know um, the reason that we needed all of the details of the crime was because for every uh, thing that the rapist did to them, it constituted um, another crime that was committed against them. But you, when you go back to the 1978s, when these crimes were being committed, uh, rape was a misdemeanor. I mean, you could go to jail for a year, so they um, weren't considered very serious. So at about in 1978, women were marching the streets uh, in Sacramento, uh, demanding a change to sexual assault laws to better protect them. And Governor Jerry Brown was uh, in uh, office at the time, and uh, there was a big news media that he, when he was flanked by the National Organization for Women, when he signed seven bills that would toughen California's rape and sex offender laws, requiring mandatory terms uh, for uh, prison terms for the rapist, uh, even on a first conviction. So when you look at uh, what we were dealing with back then and the importance of being able to solve a case immediately, uh, because uh, once the uh, report was made, our time was uh, running out to be able to arrest uh, the rapist. Um, so the the interviews were um, long, uh, very sensitive, but I guess because of all of the years of experience that I had working with sexual assault victims and uh, child victims, I uh, knew how important it was to have a good rapport with the victims, uh, to let them know why we were asking so many questions to put them at ease and to see what we could do for them. When, when you look at the help for uh, rape victims at that time, rape centers were just starting up. And we were at war with the rape the crisis center that had just opened up in Sacramento uh, because of their anti-police uh, attitude that they had. They were telling victims not to make reports because we were going to be they were going to be treated very harshly. And we actually had victims coming out supporting us. At that time, the chief of police and the sheriff uh, were petitioning to have all of their funding taken away because they were so anti-police. But uh, a new leadership came in, and let me tell you what has happened to rape crisis centers over the years. They are a fantastic tool uh, for uh, people. Yeah, because even today with the Me Too movement and everything, you have like the criticism from outside people being like, well, why didn't you come forward? Well, back then, as you can see, you relive your trauma, you go through it, you lay yourself bare, then the guy gets a misdemeanor, maybe he's away for a little bit, then he comes back out. So I'm sure these women were like, is this even worth it for me to expose myself in this way and talk about this? Are people even going to take me seriously? Do you feel that they felt more comfortable talking to you as a woman that was a part of this investigation? Like maybe she can, you know, walk a little bit in my shoes because she experiences the world in a similar way I do? No, I, I believe it was easier. I do believe there were male investigators that had a great rapport with some of the victims, but from uh, many of the victims uh, from other jurisdictions and some of those that were interviewed by others in our department, uh, they were very uncomfortable. And I don't know, it's just uh, being able to uh, try to relate. There were some very, uh, very awkward times. So 
when I was doing the interviews, after I had done two or three interviews, my captain called me in and said, um, Carol, you're asking leading questions in all of these interviews. And I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, all of these cases are the same. So you must be asking leading questions. Well, I said, no, I'm not. And he said, yeah, you're going to tape record your next interview so we can evaluate your work. And I, I was astonished because it had been, I had 10 years of experience. I was selected to go to homicide uh, because of my uh, reporting and uh, ability to do investigations. And so I tape recorded the interview and afterwards uh, he said, no, you're right. These cases almost were mirrored each one we knew exactly you know what we what he was going to do i mean they they varied in of course in the scene and and some of the things that he said and some of the things that he did um but i told him i won't tape record another interview because it was just another intimidating tool for the victim knowing that her words were being recorded as opposed to me writing things down so uh, uh, yeah there was uh, there was a, a lot of stress there was a lot of stress in the community. And when these rapes first started, it, it was uh, the decision of our sheriff not to make them public. Um, he had his best team of investigators working on the case, and he knew that uh, we were going to solve it. And then he could uh, go to the media and let them know, uh, you know, that uh, the rapist had been arrested. Well, that didn't happen. And the news started to get out uh, about a rapist in the community. And some community businessmen uh, went in and talked to him and said, you have to make this public. The public has to know and being able to protect themselves. And uh, so once that happened, uh, we were really thrown full cycle into uh, working uh, with the community, the fear in the community, uh, working with the victims, and everything became front page news. We had two newspapers in the uh, Sacramento at the time, and every rape was big headlines, um, uh, rape number five, rape number 10, rape number 12. And the community, I mean, they were buying guns, they were trying to padlock their homes, uh, they were sleeping in rotating shifts, guarding their homes at night. Um, the fear in the community was terrific. So one of the things that we did, there were so many rumors about what the rapist was doing, and we set up large community meetings where we would have six to 800 people come at a time to uh, have us talk about it, to have a presentation on how to uh, protect yourselves and secure your homes, and just being front and center, um, answering questions. It was it was really a very, very stressful time uh, for everybody in our department and surrounding areas at the time. And do you think this response from the community really stepping things up, locking their doors, getting guns uh, had any impact on him eventually moving to other parts of California for his crimes? I think what the biggest impact of him moving from uh, Sacramento and going on, because he did hit some of the surrounding jurisdictions and then he would come back into Sacramento. But I think it was because uh, we had purchased the first helicopter. And remember at the time there was no street lighting. We didn't have cameras in, on you know businesses and homes and things like we have now. Uh, we didn't even have a 911 where people could call in. And when you think about people 
reporting the crime of, of rape, it is a very, very difficult thing to talk about. It's very embarrassing. And I, I remember at the time I was talking with uh, my partners who were male, and they said, uh, we think there's a lot of rapes that aren't being reported by the East Area Rapists. And I said, no. I said, I'll never believe that because of what he did, the binding, you know, the several acts, and then the threats to kill. And I said, no, they all come forward. Well, we have learned uh, since then, after um, he was identified, that there are other victims who are now coming forward saying, I was a victim of the East Area Rapist. And we took all of them. Well, I didn't, but the department took all of them very serious. And there were two or three that were legitimately victims of the East Area Rapist who had failed to report it at the time because of um, the embarrassment of the activities and the fear that they would be killed if uh, they made a report and he came back to them. Uh, so it was... Um, it, it's a case that never, ever leaves you. Um, at the time that we were working uh, the cases, he was, uh, the East Area Rapist was just toying uh, with law enforcement, even in the media. And he made a call to the 911 uh, dispatch center saying uh, he was going to kill the investigators working his case. And of course, they. Um, I live in the city jurisdiction, not in county. And uh, they came out and they put a, an alarm system uh, in our house. Well, at the time, the alarm system was a mat that you step on and, and it uh, sends a signal to uh, the police department. Uh, but it was just, it was so annoying. We had uh, children, we had uh, pets, and it just didn't work out. It was more stressful to, you know, for me. And it was interesting because these cases started out in the uh, east area of Sacramento. I live in the south area. We leave our sliding glass door open at night because we get a nice river breeze. And uh, and many people felt that if they weren't in the east area, they felt a little bit safer. And of course, then one of his last rapes was walking distance within my house. Mm. And um, I always think about at the time, you didn't have access to going on a computer and researching somebody and finding out where they lived. I mean, you couldn't even get information on uh, when you were checking a phone number to see what address it went to at that time, unless you were in law enforcement. And so he just toyed with people in just about any way that he could, calling the victims after the attack and talking in his, in his disguised voice. Uh, so he was a very, very evil man. We're going to take a quick break. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. And you say the cases always stick with you. So you had to go all these decades without anyone being caught. And then fast forward to 2018 and this guy, Joseph D'Angelo, is arrested thanks to some genetic DNA tests that his relative had done. What was your reaction when you first heard, hey, I think we might have the guy? Well, at the time we were working the cases, um, we felt he was more and more on the borderline of getting ready to kill his victims. Uh, we could just tell from his behavior. And we now know that he was responsible for killing uh, two people in Sacramento that we didn't exactly tie. Uh, it was the majority um, murders. Uh, we didn't really connect them with the East Area Rapists at the time. But in 2001, uh, DNA from our cases were matched with the homicides down south. And that's in another fear in the community because he still wasn't identified and he had threatened to come back and, and uh, kill people. So when Amory Schubert was elected DA in 2014, 
she made it her priority to put a task force together for agencies all over the state to work together to see if they couldn't um, um, solve this case. And of course, uh, you know, it was solved uh, through the DNA. Um, and I, I remember course during during the time that all of this was happening uh, because we had a lack of support services for rape victims I set up counseling on my own with Dr. John Coles who was a psychiatrist that worked for our department to do critical incident debriefing and I remember at the time the men who were partners uh, and husbands uh, with the women and were victims at the time um, I uh, reached out to them to try to get them into a counseling session, and none of them, uh, they, they wouldn't agree to do it. But doing everything that we could at the time, uh, you know, to help these victims through it. Um, over the years, because of all of the media and all of the documentaries and everything that was made, I've really been in contact uh, with the victims, um, and especially in the last, like, seven years. So when he was arrested, we opened our home for all of the victims to come here after each one of the hearings to just talk with each other and um, uh, get acquainted. Um, there was a, a great support group, you know, with, with the victims. Uh, and every victim needs support. But with this group, because of the type of attacks and uh, what they went through waiting for so many years, it was, uh, they really need to get closure. And watching the healing over the years uh, of the survivors was probably the biggest reward that I could ever have, um, you know, in working in my career. That's amazing that you did stay in contact with them and help them through this decades and decades later. From a law enforcement standpoint, what was your reaction when you found out he was a member of law enforcement? But early on, we thought that he was either military. We had two military bases here at the time. And early on, we really felt that he either had a law enforcement background because of how he could conceal all of the evidence at the crime scenes. Um, and it was only one little blood spot at one of the crime scenes that we were able to um, get a blood type from. And um, so it, it, we really felt that he was either military police or he was law enforcement. So it was, I, I can't say that it was a real shock, uh, but it was just sort of a validation of who we thought he was all along. So because we thought that, every uh, officer in our department that matched the height or the description uh, went through the elimination process. Um, we went to the military bases. We went to uh, Postal. We went to FedEx. Uh, we went to Utilities. We went to briefings and anybody that that matched the description, uh, we were working to get them eliminated. During the first two years that I worked on that case, we eliminated over 6,000 suspects and just mainly from the blood type and uh, the information that we had, you know, as far as, you know, the height and the weight and everything. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, technology has come a long way. How women get into law enforcement, that's come a long way. And so has how sexual assault has been treated and how we understand it as a society over the years. But what would your message be to sexual assault victims today in 2023 if they were questioning about coming forward or looking for resources to crack the case of someone that hurt them? 
I would just encourage anyone who has been a victim of a sexual assault or any other type of crime to come forward. Um, by coming forward, the information gets into the record and it may prevent um, other uh, attacks. But it's more important that the victim come forward and start the healing process. Um, uh, I know that watching the survivors of the East Area Rapists, I know the impact and the trauma that is inflicted upon rape victims. Um, and the first one who came forward wanted her face hid and wanted her voice disguised. And then one of them wrote a book. Another one uh, just formed um, a online sexual assault survivors. It's time to tell your story. That's Chris Pedretti. And uh, she said, if I just help one person to come forward and talk about it. Uh, and it's amazing. I think she has five or 600 that have responded to uh, her on site now. Uh, the rape crisis centers, the training that the uh, counselors get, and they're assigned directly to law enforcement. They work directly with law enforcement to interview the victims, the quiet rooms they have, the interviewing process. Everything has changed so much. It's not, uh, I, I think it'll always be intimidating for victims, but the help is there. You go online and there are so many avenues of help for uh, rape victims to have, but law enforcement really needs to be their first uh, connection to uh, help them. And it's really their choice about going forward and how much they want to share and what they want to do. But I think it's empowering for them uh, to make that first step to make a report. Well, Carol Daly, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us and sharing your story and for all you've done for all of those victims so many years ago. Thank you for inviting me. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. To stay up to date on the latest true crime headlines, subscribe to the Fox True Crime Minute with Laura Ingle wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.